Episode 1, Marbury versus Madison. No constitutional law class worth its salt would ever begin with a case other than Marbury versus Madison. It is probably the most important Supreme Court case ever decided, and we're going to go over why in this episode. This is the first episode, so I'm hoping to basically lay an outline for how I will structure these podcasts in the future, but I do reserve the right to change the structure at any time. So what happened in this case? The election of 1800 was hotly contested between Thomas Jefferson of the Democratic-Republican Party and John Adams of the Federalist Party. The Federalist Party was a party that was in favor of a strong national government and was considered more pro-business. It favored a centralized national bank. It was also more pro-British, which caused many to claim that they were in favor of the monarchical system which the U.S. had just fought to leave. The Democratic-Republican Party was in favor of stronger state governments as opposed to the national government. It was also more centered around the agrarian individuals, the so-called yeoman farmer. The Democratic-Republicans strongly disagreed with the centralized national bank. Thomas Jefferson easily won the popular vote with approximately 61%, while John Adams got about 39% of the vote. However, the Electoral College was much more narrow. 9-7 in favor of Thomas Jefferson. Because of his loss, President John Adams was scheduled to leave office on March 4, 1801. However, John Adams and his Federalist cohorts were determined to pack the government with pro-Federalist appointees to combat Thomas Jefferson's plans. One of their strategies was to pass the Judiciary Act of 1801. This act created three new circuit courts and multiple new seats on the circuit courts. It also created 10 district courts. Circuit courts were an appellate court for the district courts with some original jurisdiction. District courts were trial courts with only original jurisdiction. We will go over original jurisdiction in some depth throughout this case. Typically, when we're talking about circuit courts throughout this podcast, we will be talking about them in the context of their appellate jurisdiction, and we will be talking about the district court as the trial court. The Judiciary Act created 16 new judicial seats. After creating these new judicial seats, John Adams and his Federalist buddies tried packing them, and others, with Federalist judges. On March 2, 1801, John Adams nominated 60 judges to open seats. On March 3, 1801, a day before John Adams was scheduled to leave office, the Senate confirmed these judges en masse. That day, John Adams signed the judicial commissions and sent them to his Secretary of State, John Marshall, to be sealed and sent to the new appointees. At this point, John Marshall had recently been approved to be a justice on the Supreme Court. He would be the judge who would write the opinion in this case, and he would dominate the court for 30 years. But we'll get to that. John Marshall directed his brother to deliver the commissions to the new appointees. He was successful in most cases, but there were a few that went undelivered. The next day, Thomas Jefferson took office and directed his new Secretary of State, James Madison, to withhold any appointments which had not been delivered. These new judicial appointees were now derisively referred to as the Midnight Judges by the Democratic Republicans. One of the appointees who did not receive his commission was William Marbury, a prominent Maryland businessman and staunch Federalist. As a result, he petitioned the Supreme Court for a writ of mandamus, which would direct James Madison to deliver his signed commission to him so that he may take his judicial seat. If you want a discussion of writs, please check out the Concepts episode preceding this episode. So, 
In December of 1801, Marbury sues James Madison as the Secretary of State in the Supreme Court, asking the court to issue a writ of mandamus to James Madison, directing him to deliver the commission. What do the Democratic Republicans do? They do exactly what any decent new governing party would do. They pass a bill which cancels the Supreme Court's 1802 term. So, this case is not heard until February of 1803, nearly two years after Marbury's commission was signed. Of course, this lawsuit puts the new Supreme Court in a precarious position. John Marshall is a Federalist, and if he directs James Madison to deliver the commission, it is very likely that Madison completely ignores that writ, which would highlight the toothlessness of the federal judiciary. But if he does not order James Madison to deliver the commission, it would have been a pretty big political victory for the Democratic Republicans over their Federalist counterparts. I would also like to note that John Marshall is kind of an integral part to what happened in this case. He was the Secretary of State who sealed the appointments and directed them to be delivered. I think that if this case had happened today, it is likely that he would have recused himself from the decision of this matter. So, what does the court do? John Marshall writes the opinion of the court, which he delivered on February 24, 1803, 13 days after the hearing on this case. I was kind of shocked when I read that, as it typically takes appellate courts much longer time periods to render opinions nowadays. John Marshall asked three questions that he believed he needed to answer in order to decide this case. Number one, does Marbury have a right to his commission? First, John Marshall points to Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, which says that the president shall nominate and, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. Article 2, Section 3, provides that the President shall commission all the officers of the United States. Finally, there was a law passed by Congress which directed the Secretary of State to keep the seal of the United States and to affix the seal to all civil commissions to officers of the United States after the President had signed their commissions. Marshall took this to mean that there were three distinct parts to a judicial appointment, the nomination, the appointment, and the commission. Marshall stated that the president signing the commission gave it the force and effect of the act of the president. The law that I just went over then explicitly directed the Secretary of State to affix the seal of the United States to the commission and record it as an official document. The secretary had no discretion in that matter. Marshall then said that a commission does not require transmission to be valid. A commission is transmitted to a person, and the delivery of the appointment had no effect on the appointment itself. If the mail was slow, it didn't mean that the person hadn't been appointed and commissioned. To sum up, I'll just read the opinion. It is decidedly the opinion of the court that when a commission has been signed by the president, the appointment is made, and that the commission is complete when the seal of the United States has been affixed to it by the Secretary of State. Mr. Marbury then, since his commission was signed by the President and sealed by the Secretary of State, was appointed, and as the law creating the office gave the officer a right to hold for five years, independent of the executive, the appointment was not revocable, but vested in the officer legal rights, which are protected by the laws of this country. To withhold this commission, therefore, is an act deemed by the court not warranted in law, but violative of a vested legal right. Number two, 
the second question that Justice Marshall had to answer. Does Marbury have a remedy? A remedy is an important concept in law. In fact, I took an entire class specifically on remedies in law school. However, for your purposes, just know that a remedy is exactly what it sounds like. Basically, it is law asking, is there something we can do to make this right? In my practice, the typical remedy is money. The law can't just snap its fingers and make my injured clients uninjured. That's not a valid remedy. To John Marshall, this was a pretty easy question. There's an idea in the common law which Justice Marshall quotes. It is a general and indisputable rule that where there is a legal right, there is also a legal remedy by suit or action at law whenever that right is invaded. In this case, Marbury was properly commissioned and no one had a right to stop that commission, including the Secretary of State. Therefore, Marbury did have an injury, and that injury could be remedied. Number three, is he entitled to the remedy? Justice Marshall breaks this down further into two sub-issues. A, the nature of the writ applied for. Justice Marshall cites Blackstone defining mandamus to be a command issuing from the king's bench and directed to any person, corporation, or inferior court in the king's dominions requiring them to do some specific thing. He further cites a case from the English common law, King versus Baker, which states that whenever there is a right and a person is kept out of possession of that right and does not have another specific legal remedy, the court ought to issue a writ of mandamus. But Justice Marshall was concerned with whether the court could direct the Secretary of State to perform this action. At this point, he wades into the realm of whether the action Marbury requests is a political question, which we will go over later. Suffice it to say, Justice Marshall simply says that the court can decide on the rights of individuals, but not on actions over which the executive, i.e. the president, has discretion. But Justice Marshall reasons that if the head of a department committed an illegal act which caused an injury, he could still be sued as a result of that injury. So, he decides that where the head of the department, like the Department of State, is directed by law to perform an act which affects the rights of an individual, and when that performance is not under the specific direction of the president, and that the president cannot bar that specific action, a writ of mandamus can be appropriate. Now we get to the real meat of the decision. The last question Justice Marshall asks himself is, can the court issue this writ? It is important to remember that Marbury had filed his lawsuit in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court was the trial court for this matter. There were no other courts which had heard the matter. So, Justice Marshall goes over the legal baseline for this. Specifically, the act to establish the courts in the United States authorized the Supreme Court to issue writs of mandamus in cases warranted by the principles and usages of law to any courts appointed or persons holding office under the authority of the United States. But Article 3, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution says, The Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction in all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party. In all other cases, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction. Now we get to Article 3 and the question of jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is the power of a court to hear a case, and there are a few different types of jurisdiction in American law. 
A court requires subject matter jurisdiction and personal jurisdiction to hear a case. Subject matter jurisdiction simply means the court has the power to hear a matter. So, for example, a trade dispute involving Singaporean companies with disputes that rose in Singapore involving Singapore law, the United States courts probably would not have subject matter jurisdiction over those issues under Article 3, Section 2, Clause 1, which states, The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States and treaties made, or which shall be made under their authority. Personal jurisdiction is simply the power of the court over a particular person. In that Singaporean hypothetical I just gave, the United States courts would likely not have personal jurisdiction over the Singaporean companies, unless they directed commercial activity at the United States. We probably won't really talk about personal jurisdiction very much, if at all, in this podcast. It's probably too arcane for anyone to really care except for lawyers. But if the people clamor for an episode on Panoyer v. Neff, I'll probably relent. I just doubt it'll happen. So, there are two types of subject matter jurisdiction. Original jurisdiction and appellate jurisdiction. As you can probably guess, original jurisdiction means that a court is the first one to hear the case. Appellate jurisdiction means that a court hears the case following the trial court. Remember, the Supreme Court heard this case as as an original matter, but the Constitution says specifically the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction only in cases involving ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party. In all other cases, the Supreme Court has appellate jurisdiction. It cannot hear cases not involving ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party as a trial court under the Constitution. But that act of Congress gave it power to issue writs of mandamus under original jurisdiction. So now we have a conflict between the Constitution and an act of Congress. Justice Marshall phrases it this way, whether an act repugnant to the Constitution can become the law of the land. Justice Marshall plays with the idea that the Constitution is a grant by the capital P people allowing the government-defined powers and limiting powers where necessary. And, if the Congress can pass a law repugnant to the Constitution, then the powers of the Constitution become unlimited. The Constitution is the supreme and fundamental law of the land. And so if an act of the legislature is repugnant or in opposition to it, does the court have to follow that repugnant act? This is where Justice Marshall gives probably the most important judicial quote in American history. It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Because the act giving the Supreme Court original jurisdiction to issue writs of mandamus to government officials was beyond the grant in the Constitution, Justice Marshall had to strike that grant of jurisdiction down. The Supreme Court did not have the power to hear the case and issue the writ. That was for a different court. The case was dismissed. William Marbury never held a judicial seat. This case is important because it introduces the concept of judicial review into American life that a court can look at the laws of the United States and decide whether they are allowed within the framework of the Constitution. Judicial review as a concept does not exist in the Constitution. There is no grant of power to the courts to review legislation explicitly. This is the genius of Justice Marshall's decision. He expanded the power of the court while simultaneously giving a political win to an opponent. 
So the Democratic Republicans could happily allow the court to have this power and strike down the law, and the court didn't have to highlight its impotence by issuing an order it could never enforce. Forever after this case, the Supreme Court would now be able to review the legislation and decide whether it could be the law of the land. Next week, I will be going over two new cases. First, I will go over Barron versus Baltimore, which decides whether or not the Bill of Rights limits the state's rights individually. Then, I will go over McCulloch versus Maryland, a very important case in our everyday life, even if you don't know it.